Today we're continuing on in the, the series that we started about five years ago uh, on, through Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we, we're, we've been in this series on living life in a way that is different in the best of ways. We've just called it peculiar in a good way. And what we've been thinking through is just what does it look like for us to live our lives in a way that reflects Jesus? Because Jesus was holy. He was set apart. He was different in, in the best of ways, not in the worst of ways. And the reason we've been in this series, by the way, is because we are, as the body of Christ, the extension of Christ's life in this world. We don't just represent Christ. We, we make him known in a very personal way. You're a part of his body. And so as a representative and as someone who is making Christ known to people, we want to make sure that we're living lives that are peculiar, like Jesus' life was peculiar. Because around here, and we say this every once in a while, when we talk about being a family of priests revealing Christ, one of the things that's at the core of that is this sentiment that we don't want to be a consumer-oriented church. We want to be contributors. We want to be givers and, and not takers, because that's what grace does to someone's life. It turns them into into a contributor, into a giver. And at the heart of that is this realization that as a believer, as a Christ follower, my biggest concern is not that Jesus make himself relevant to me as if I'm at the center of the universe. I want my life and I want your life to be relevant to him because that's the essence of worship. And if you're seeking as a worshiper to be relevant to Christ, you're going to want to know what does Jesus have me to do so as to reflect him appropriately to others around. And I know different churches have different philosophies on this, but it's just, to me, seems to be biblically self-evident that everything we do as believers needs to center around Christ because that's the way the world works with God and Christ at the center of it. And so we've been in this little series about, you know, living a life that's peculiar in, in the best sort of way. And today we're, we're going to be talking actually about work because as believers we have an opportunity to have a different philosophy toward, a different attitude toward, a different disposition toward, a different level of engagement in our work in a way that reflects Christ no matter where we find ourselves at any given moment. So I'm kind of excited about this, and it's just the next verse up, and the, the advantage of preaching through a text is nobody thinks that I'm picking on them in any respect or, or another. This is just what comes next. And so if anything hits you, it's entirely accidental. But if you're still angry at someone, just hit the person next to you. Okay, and with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. And this is actually, I think, really encouraging, frankly. Ephesians chapter 4, verses, verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. May God bless you. His word, you may be seated. Now, um, this morning we're talking about the wonder of work, and some of us are saying, okay, wait, the wonder of work, I thought that work was under a curse. And if you thought that, well, you're right. It is. The Bible teaches that when sin entered into the world, it impacted negatively everything that we do, and that includes work. And so God says to Adam over in chapter 3, verse 19 of Genesis, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Works got a curse. Uh, Irma Bombeck, decades ago, was speaking from the perspective of, of a housewife, and she said, As a housewife, I recognize that if you're going to do 
if I'm going to do my cleaning correctly, it's going to kill me. So she said, I just prefer to sweep the house with a glance. And she talks about uh, basically spending her whole life fighting against dirt. She said, I, I fight against, I wash the dirt from the dishes, I wash dirt from the laundry, I, I sweep dirt from the floor. My whole life has been about fighting against dirt. And the end result of all of this, my final reward for fighting against dirt, is six feet of dirt. And, uh, and so that's kind of a little bit like Genesis chapter 3, because in, in the book of Genesis, what we're told is work isn't going to work as well as work needs to work. There's a dustiness about work. From dust you come to dust you return, you're going to work and things are going to fall apart and disintegrate. And sometimes it's going to feel like you're on a treadmill on the incline setting and you're not really going anywhere and it's kind of exhausting and and, in the end you're going to fall apart and return to dust. And so there's there's a curse on work because sin has entered into the world and as a result of sin there is inequity, there's injustice, there's inequality in our work, there's frustration. But just because work is cursed, here's what you need to understand. Just because work is cursed doesn't mean that work is a curse. Work is cursed, but work itself is not a curse. And what what I mean by that is even before the fall, Adam and Eve were working. They were given a task. And what this communicates is as people created in the image of God, we were intended to feel like accomplishing something and actually accomplish something. You, you and I were built to work. We were made to feel like contributors and to actually be contributors. So just because work doesn't work like work needs to work doesn't mean that work in and of itself is a curse. And so what that means for you and for me is that as believers, we ought to do our very best to get into our work. We ought to immerse ourselves in our work and engage fully in our work because work itself is a good thing. And that's kind of good news to me because the average American who has a full-time job works at it for 47 hours a week. That's average. And that's not including drive time to work and drive time from work. And so if we're talking about the average American five days a week, you're probably spending most of your waking hours working. And so I think it's really, really good news, actually, to know that when you're working, you can be engaged in it in such a way that you're actually bringing glory to God and finding fulfillment and living in touch with who you've been made to be as someone created in God's image who is intended to create. Now, with all that in mind, I kind of get excited about the topic today. And I have to be honest with you. I, I told you it's just the next verse up. Um, but when you start thinking about work and what God intended in work, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it's kind of refreshing and, and fulfilling, and, and it should make all of your days and your hours meaningful. But before we press into this too far, let's give a definition. Uh, let's define our terms here. Based on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, here's the working definition for, for work. Uh, work is the intentional expenditure of effort to do something useful, and to create wealth so that you can help other people. The two purposes are right there in the definition, to do something useful and to create wealth with which you can help people. Now, we're going to talk through both of these aspects of the purpose of of work, doing something useful and creating wealth to help, help other people. But first, let's just talk about usefulness. Do you know what happens when 
you don't feel useful, if you're not doing your, if you're not doing something useful to someone else or for someone else, how does that make you feel? Well, kind of worthless. It can make you feel like your life doesn't mean much. This is the interesting thing that happens at around retirement. People, until they reach retirement, commonly in the past would think, when I have enough money so that I don't have to work anymore, then I'm going to stop working and everything's going to be great. And then they found depression would set in. And so now we have counselors, psychologists, and life coaches, and financial counselors who say, if you're going to retire and retire well, you've got to look at it like this. You've got to look at it as I'm taking an opportunity to stop doing one form of work so that I can start doing another form of work. Now, why is that? Well, because you were built to work. You were made to have meaning. You were made, essentially, to serve other people. Now, again, work doesn't always work the way we wish work would. There are inequities. Uh, You know, sometimes, and this is how it is in Genesis, there's going to be thorns and thistles that come from the ground. It's not all going to be fruit trees out there. But even though work doesn't work like work needs to work, the reality is when you work, you're doing something that is incredible. You're putting yourself in touch with the essence of what it means to be fully human, and that is to be a servant. The essence of a life well lived is essentially to make yourself useful to other people. And there are other verses along these lines about it's in giving that you receive. It's not just that love makes the world go around, looks good on a coffee mug. When you start thinking through the reality of economics, you recognize, no, actually, love, others-oriented lives lived out in a practical way for the benefit of other people, love really actually does make the world go round. It brings the world together. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's just take the working definition that comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, and, and remove the second half. Okay, the full, the full meaning is work is the intentional expenditure of effort to do something useful and to create wealth to help other people. Okay, let's just take the last part off. Let's just think of it in terms of how a lot of people think, and that is just work is the intentional expenditure of effort to do something. That's more of a physics definition, by the way. Well, if, you're, if you're thinking about physics, you measure energy or work. You measure it in terms of ohms or you measure it in terms of joules. You're, you're measuring it in terms of transfer of energy. But when the Bible talks about work, it's not just talking about transfer of energy. It's purposeful transfer of energy for the purpose of other people. Let, let, let's go out like this. When, when, you, when you take leisure time, some of you... You're very active in your leisure time. In your leisure time, you go jogging in the morning, which I just think is a terrible form of exercise. I mean, you just, you never see anybody smiling when they're jogging. When you're a kid, it was punishment. In your middle years, you do it by choice. You've you got a midlife crisis going on. But, uh, you know, but I, I understand because I've been there. But I don't run anymore because I think... Gravity and mass are good things. Um, But anyways, if you go jogging or you ride your bike, nobody pays you for that. You know why? Because you're doing it for yourself. Now, it's, it's a good thing, okay? But you're doing it for you. Or if you garden in the backyard, you're expending energy. If you're working in your shop doing some crafts, you're you're expending energy, but you're doing it for you, okay? 
you don't get paid for that. Or let's just put it in another way. Let's just suppose you go to a deserted island and uh, you didn't mean to get there. You just kind of landed there and you're there by yourself and you are working really hard to stay alive. But, but you have the resources and the energy and the know-how. I mean, you're just, you know, you're incredibly resourceful. So you grow your own food. You raise your own chickens. And some of you have a leg up on the rest of us on that one. And you are able to make your own clothes and you build your own lean-to and your own hut. I mean, you went through all the Boy Scout training and you could do all that stuff. And you're working 16 hours a day. But is that work in a biblical sense? Well, not really. You're doing it for yourself. Now, please do what you need to do to stay alive. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to go jogging, really, or to, to exercise or to garden or to keep yourself alive on a deserted island. But those don't fit the biblical definitions of work. Because work is to make yourself useful to others. What I'm meaning to say is, without work, civilization doesn't get created. Or the way I put it on the screen is making yourself useful to others is what brings the world together. That's the way God intended for work to work. Through our work, God brings the world together and creates civilization. But if you're working only for yourself or if your primary interest is in you, is in you yourself in terms of the effort and energy that you expend, not only does the world not come together, but the world actually falls apart. It leads to disintegration. Now, here's the interesting thing in all of this. We know the scripture that says, give and you'll receive, right? Well, that happens with regards to economics, because if you primarily make yourself useful to other people, and by that you're creating civilization, here's what happens. Other people naturally become useful to you, and you win. It's always a bargain. Always a bargain when you make yourself primarily useful to other people, because you're creating the civilization whereby when you're making that eight-hour paycheck, you're able to accomplish far more and purchase far more than if you were working all by yourself and only for yourself on that deserted island. It comes out ahead for you when you are primarily interested in making yourself useful to other people. It's in giving that you receive. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not inequity or an injustice in, in our work. One of the primary examples of inequity or inequality is still the pay disparity between men and women. The, the last time I checked, the disparity is, on average, in America on the whole, for every $1 a man makes, a woman makes 80 cents. Some of that, and people on both sides agree, some of that is attributed to career choices largely centering around family. But some of that is gender-related. For example, the, the top two states where there's no, uh, very little disparity New York and California. New York, 89 cents for every dollar a man makes. In California, it's 88 cents. You go to Utah and Louisiana, it's 70 cents for every dollar that a man makes. Does that surprise anybody here? Not really. <laughs> you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to dog on any other states. Far be it from me to say that Texas is superior to Illinois. Uh, but it is, uh, I can't say that, but here's my point. There's disparity, there's injustice, there's inequality. And, and sometimes we see it in ways that we just become so accustomed to it. We don't even notice it. Like, you know, is it really fair? You know, and, and my wife's a teacher. Is it fair that, you know, if you're in the system, the same period of time, everybody gets paid exactly the same? Because some of us, we know, 
You know, we have teachers that put a lot of effort and they're really good. And then the other ones are just checking in and checking out. Is that really fair? I don't know. It doesn't seem that way, but it's what it is. We could go on down the line and compare careers and people and all the rest. But here's the bottom line. Work doesn't work like work needs to work. There is injustice in it, but in spite of the inequities, in spite of the brokenness, in spite of the curse, work still puts us in touch with the essence of a life well lived, and that's to serve. It still reminds us of the reality that when we make ourselves useful to other people, we actually end up benefiting in the end. It still works in terms of civilization being created because God's intention from the very beginning was not that we just all live in a bunch of grass huts and be disconnected from one another because God from the beginning says, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to have dominion. There needs to be the creation of civilization. So work was invented by God to do what it is that work is doing. And I think that's an incredible argument actually for the reality of the inspiration of Scripture because Scripture fits economics when you start looking at the details of it. And it certainly fits the nature of God and the nature of Christian servanthood because when we live in accordance with the reality of God and when we live in accordance with love, economics works better and society works better. And when we're doing things only for ourselves, everything falls apart. So praise God for work. Now where's the personal application in this? Here it is. When you want to get in touch with who you're created to be, when you want to be in touch with who, uh, with, with something deep inside of you in, in terms of the essence of your humanity, when you want to make an impact that lasts well beyond your years, you do your best to work and make yourself useful to other people. Work is amazing. Work is wonderful. And some of you are going, oh, okay, now you're getting preachy because you didn't know my week last week. My work wasn't that wonderful. Okay, maybe it was dusty, and maybe it was filled with injustice, and maybe it was filled with frustration. But I really want you to know that if you've done your best to do your 40 hours and you were fully engaged or whatever it is that you're doing, and you did your best to work and make yourself useful to others, and you were there to serve, I just want you to know that you should feel really, really, really good about yourself, no matter what your particular work might be. Now, there's a question that comes up, and it typically comes up among younger people, and, and that would be, okay, I'm a Christian, and I'm, I'm kind of open for different options and, and opportunities, jobs, careers. So what do I do? Which way do I go? Well, here's the central question that people have to ask themselves. What is the career or job that would make me most useful to other people? And, of course, there are certain jobs that are lucrative that are, that are not actually useful and actually can be destructive because we, we live with broken people in a broken world that have addictions to broken things that further breaks this broken world. Just because something is even legal doesn't mean that it's an open option to somebody who's a Christ follower. But one of the appropriate questions is, can I make myself useful to other people? And the other question is, can I create wealth? What opportunity, all things considered equal, what opportunity enables me to create the most wealth to make the most money? And you say, well, that doesn't sound like a spiritual question at all. Well, of course it's a spiritual question because God's intention with those resources that you bring are to be of benefit to other people. There's nothing unspiritual about making money. Nothing at all. And we're going to address that a little bit more profoundly in just a second. So those are the questions. Now, of course, you've got to think about your shape and your gifts and your talents and where you are at any particular time or, or what, your, 
what your, your historical makeup is and all the rest. But on the whole, the question that we ask is, what can I do to make myself most useful to other people, useful in the job itself, and useful with regards to the finances that I'm able to accrue and the property that I'm able to accrue so as to help other people? And, of course, that's the appropriate question because, again, God's whole intention in work is to bring the world together. And it doesn't matter what, if it's like you know, church work or secular work or whatever. So let me just put that myth to bed. God created the entire world, material and immaterial. And he's redeeming all of the world that he created, material and immaterial. He created body and he created soul. And when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, the body and the soul, that material and immaterial, will both be redeemed because it's all important to God. And so whatever your job is, if you're making yourself useful to other people, it should be a spiritual experience where you're fully engaged in, in an endeavor that is consecrated, set apart to God. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or you're in manufacturing or a doctor or, or a lawyer or whatever. If you're doing this to make yourself useful to other people and you're doing it to accrue resources so as to help other people, it's an absolutely wonderful opportunity to spiritually devote your life to God in a way that brings Him glory. Because all of the earth, material and immaterial, was created by him and is being redeemed by him. So the right question to ask, of course, is how do I make myself useful to other people? And I have to say just real quickly, just by way of illustration, that we have people here who are asking the right kinds of questions. Now, we have lots of people that are serving all the time, but things kind of stick out when new things get started. And I want to mention at least one thing uh, here this morning. Um, Colin and Chrissy Searing asking the right kind of question. How can we make ourselves useful to other people? So here's what's happening. Uh, one week from Wednesday, it's June 13th, from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock, the second Wednesday of every month, we're getting together over at the San Jose Splash Park. That's about eight-tenths of a mile from here. It's real near where Gina works at, uh, at Annie Pearl Elementary School. And it's going to be kind of a backyard Bible club sort of uh, event, and the searings are taking care of the, the Word and the, the craft, the activity. Aaron's class is helping in this. John Hergrove's class is helping in this. And, and it kind of came from, from people just asking, what can we as a church do to make ourselves more useful? Because God put us right here in this location for a particular reason, and that is to be ministers to people around us. It's the right kind of question to ask. How can we be useful? I mentioned one other thing. Uh, very simple. Uh, Lois Robinson, I was actually talking to her on Friday night, and she used these very words. She said, I just wanted to know how I could be useful. And uh, what happened is she was, had these conversations going with uh, Rachel uh, Ballard because Rachel's been inviting people just to in community, people who are not even in the church or connected to any church, just to kind of get together as young moms. And so she'd been talking to, to Lois and had been going over to Lois's house. And on Thursday, Lois had 30 people over her house, some older ladies and I think about seven or eight younger women and their little kids and 30 of them total. And, and I know that... Um, the Ballard's kids are always incredibly well-behaved. Uh, but I don't know about all the rest. But anyways, it's just wonderful to have people saying, how can I make myself useful to you? You know what that does? It creates community. It brings the world together. This is how God designed work to work. So we've been talking about the usefulness of what it is that we do. Let, let's talk a little bit about the resources that our usefulness brings. Which, by the way, this is just the next verse up. 
And I wanted to go back and check. I don't know when the last time is I talked on money. I think it's probably been over a couple of years. This is why I don't do a series straight through Luke, because if you go through Luke's gospel, you've got to talk about money about every other week. It's just kind of how his thing is. So I avoid Luke, just so you know. Uh, but, but here we are in this particular passage talking about money, and I just want you to know that if you like money, if you appreciate money, if you want more money, I want to affirm you. Good. Great. Please do. You ought to be concerned about money. Because money gives dignity. It's a dignifying resource because God intended for you and for me to exercise dominion. And one of the ways that we exercise dominion, one of the ways we exercise influence and power, hopefully in a good way, are through the resources that we make by making ourselves useful to other people. There's nothing wrong with money. It's dignifying. In fact, one of the worst things about being incarcerated is having everything stripped from you. Uh, Apparently, the worst thing about going to prison is not just the confinement. It's having nothing. No power, no influence, no money, no property. Even your clothes are not your own. There's something dehumanizing in that. It's not, the, it's not the confinement. Some of you, you're confined all the time. You just don't know it. You're confined to your automobile going to work. You're confined to your little office all day long or your cubicle. You're confined to your auto when you get back home, and you're confined to the house. And then when you're confined to the house, you're confined to that other person's schedule for you until you go to bed. Uh, for some of you, you're confined as a college student to somebody else's schedule, and then you have your own little cubicle or your own little dorm room. And we're, we're kind of accustomed a little bit to confinement. That's not the worst part of it. The worst part of it is having no influence. To have money does bring dignity. But here's the problem. The problem is there's a real thin line where you, you can cross over from money being your dignity to money being your definition. From money being your, your dignity to, to money being the core of your identity. And at that point, things have gotten kind of dangerous and off. Let me put it to you like this. Think of money like fire. If I were to ask you, is fire good? You, because you're wise, would of course say, well, that depends on where the fire is. If the fire's in the fireplace, it's fantastic. It warms the house and gives us some resource where we can cook. But if the fire's on the carpet, that's bad. Burns down the whole house. It depends on where it is. So the question is, where is your money? Is it in the fireplace of your your dignity, which is good? Or is it on the carpet of your definition or your identity? And that's not good. So let me give you some questions, seven questions to help you answer for yourself if your money in your heart is where it actually needs to be. Uh, the, the first question, we'll get to these. First question, does your money give you a sense of worth? Okay, not just dignity, but worth. Number two, do you appreciate yourself and others mainly in terms of financial worth? Number three, do you envy other people's possessions and power? Um, one of the Ten Commandments you might remember is do not covet. Number four, do you experience constant debilitating and or self-absorbing anxiety over money? Normal concern is one thing. That's why we do budgets. That's why you check your credit card statements and all the rest. Normal concern is one thing. Anxiety, that's something that Jesus says is inappropriate for somebody who's in a living relationship with a God who actually provides. Number five, do you have a clear bias concerning making relationships with people who have more money or less money than you? 
In the book of James, it talks quite a bit about favoritism along the lines of financial resources. And so if you're thinking in terms of relationships of up the pecking order or down the pecking order, that kind of thinking and those considerations really should be left at the door when it comes to the body of Christ. Uh, number six, do you need more than necessities to be content? Now, let me be real clear here. It is not wrong to have more than the bare necessities. I'm pretty sure that every single one of you here has more than the bare necessities. Who made gold? Who created gold? God, thank you. Who created silver? God. Who created diamonds? Who created $54 million jets that I need? I was kidding. That's, that's another joke. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was too far, wasn't it? Yeah, it was too far. Now, look, God, that was bad. That wasn't in my manuscript. I didn't pray about that. One. Shame on me. Uh, it's okay to have more than the bare necessities. Okay, here, here's the question. Okay, here's the question. The question is, is it ever enough? Okay, for you, is it ever enough or is it never enough? Okay, it's okay to have more than the bare necessities, but what is your attitude or your disposition? Is it ever enough for you? Uh, the, the scripture says this, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Uh, number seven, are you unwilling to be generous with the money God gave you? And by the way, I, I want you to notice, I, I'll talk in terms of generosity, but I don't ever, I think it's inappropriate to talk about Christians in terms of being stingy. And, uh, and here's why. As a Christian, as a Christ follower, I recognize that, and the Bible teaches, that God is the owner of everything, and I'm, I'm the steward, I'm the manager. And, and what that means is, look, if, if you were the owner of your stuff, and God said, I need you to do this and this, and then you refuse. Well, if it's your stuff, and you didn't do what you're supposed to, I guess you, that would, you'd be stingy. But if God's the owner, and you're the manager, and you don't do as he directs, that's not stinginess. That's embezzlement. And that's why in the Bible, it doesn't talk about the people of God being generous or stingy. You're either generous like Jesus was generous or like in Malachi, and really a lot of the Old Testament, you're robbing God. It's either theft and embezzlement or generosity. Those are the options for those of us who are believers. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, uh, but it's the reality of the situation. So the question is, are you being generous with what God has given you? So, well, wait a second. You've just been talking about me working, and I'm working hard, and I did this and this. And Well, you know, God did put you in America, which is kind of an advantaged position. He put you in Texas, which is even more advantaged. He put you in Georgetown. He gave you the gifts and the skills and the talents. He gave you opportunities. You know, he opened doors. He gave you the work ethic. He gave you that family heritage. We could go on and on and on and on. I mean, you... You're doing what you're doing with what God gave you in the first place. It's kind of all his, isn't it? That makes sense. I, I came across something that I thought was disconcerting, that uh, in America, on average, um, this isn't just Christians, it's just Americans. On average, if a person makes over $100,000 a year, they give 1.6% to charitable contributions. And I got to thinking about that. Maybe I give 1% away and then I get all these nie nieces and nephews and neighbors selling Girl Scout cookies. I guess that counts. And 
for most people when they give, it kind of hurts. Is that appropriate for a Christian? Really? So those are the litmus tests to see is are your financial resources that come from your work that God gave you, are they in the fireplace of your dignity or, or are they in the, on the carpet of, of your identity? Now, some of us are saying, well, to be honest, it, uh, maybe I'm a little bit off here. And I know that I ought to want to not be like I am, but I am like I am. So how do I start to want to want to be different? Because if you wanted to be different, you would be. I'm not going to say that again because that would not happen. But you get the drift. If you actually wanted to be generous or in a place, you would you'd be generous. And you say, well, I'm just not, but I need to be there. So what do I do? How do I start moving in that direction? Let me make it real simple for you. You don't grit your teeth. You don't just try harder. I can't guilt you into this, and I don't want to guilt you into this. This is not a guilt trip thing. It's really, really not. Here's the one thing that Paul points our attention to. It's just It's singular. Look at Jesus. See, verse 28 is tied to verse 32 when it says, you know, let he who steals steal no longer, but let him do work, making himself useful so that he can take what he's made and give to other people. And ties all that down to verse 32. Be compassionate, kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. All of it gets tied to understanding the grace of Jesus. What I mean is this, Jesus isn't just, he's not just your example of a giver. Jesus is the giver to you. When you see the radical giving of Jesus, it makes you a radical giver. To the degree you understand that you're a sinner saved by grace, to the degree that that weighs on you and has penetrated your heart, to that degree you're going to be generous. It's like when the sun comes out during the day and it hits noonday. The stars are still up there, right? It's just that you don't see them. Why not? Because one star is closer to you than all the others. One star warms you more than all the others. One star is brighter to you than all the others. The other stars are still there. You just don't notice them anymore because of the glory of the one that is closest to you. Well, that's Jesus. When, when you see his giving and it impacts you, it changes you and all of the other stars, to kind of paraphrase from a, a, a hymn, they grow dim in the light of his glorious grace. All those little sacrifices and gifts and expenditures of time, they just don't seem to even begin to compare to the glory of what Jesus has done for you. So when you say, like some people say, well, I just can't give anymore, and maybe you can't. I mean, that may really legitimately be your situation, okay? That may be. But when people do say, I can't give anymore, a lot of times what they mean is, I could not give anymore in terms of my resources or work or volunteer times or whatever. I couldn't give anymore without it impacting my lifestyle. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're right. Correct. But the thing is, do you think it impacted Jesus' lifestyle to give the way that he did? Of course, because he gave it all. He had it all, and he gave it all. When that hits you, it, it changes you. So here's my singular encouragement. If you feel like you're not where you need to be in terms of your heart, 
and your resources and your work being where it needs to be, press into the grace of God a little bit more deeply and allow these litmus tests of being useful to other people and making your resources useful to other people, let those, let those tests help you to be honest with where you are because grace actually makes an impact in your life and, and let those tests drive you a little bit more deeply and press a little bit more firmly into the gospel because it's the gospel that liberates you from your money and your work being that fire that is actually, in certain ways, burning up your life, and you don't even know it. Because if you can't give freely, here's the reality. You're not in control of your resources. You're in bondage to them. That's not where you want to be. It's grace that sets you free, and it's grace that sets you free to do what you know you should do and to be who you know you should be so as to make Jesus Christ known. But it all comes back to the cross. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the love and the grace that you bestowed upon us. And we pray, Lord, that we would internalize that grace to the point where it actually makes a difference in the way that we live our lives. The way that we make our choices concerning our, our actions, our, our, our jobs, our careers, the way we conduct ourselves in our careers with others around us. And the way we take those resources that come from the work and, and, and our labor, so as to benefit other people. Father, help us to become more others-oriented as you were completely others-oriented toward us. And just help us to be honest about where we are and to press into the grace a little bit more freely so that indeed we would be gracious givers, gracious employers, gracious employees, gracious contributors, gracious volunteers. Everything is a reflection upon you, our head. May it be a good reflection. And we ask that in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.